Welcome to the Masters in Exercise podcast. In this episode, we talk with Dr. Charles Hillman. Dr. Hillman is a professor in the Department of Psychology at Northeastern University in Boston. He has spent most of his research career studying how physical activity affects different aspects of cognition and brain health in children. In this episode, we discuss many, many topics. For example, we talk about the importance of physical activity for the developing brain and how exercise impacts academic performance in the youth. We also discuss the importance of environmental factors and how where we exercise can influence the benefits that exercise has on cognition. We even find time to discuss how COVID could have affected physical activity and potentially cognition in children. I was really looking forward to having this conversation. Without further ado, this is my conversation with Dr. Charles Hillman. Hello, Dr. Hillman. Thanks for participating in the podcast. I was really looking forward to speaking with you. So I always start asking guests to provide some background information to know where they're coming from and why they became interested in, in what they do. So I'm going to ask you to do the same. Okay. Well, first, you know, thanks for having me, Mark. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, I mean, why I do what I do, that's a tough question. I mean, I love my work, you know. Uh, I guess I could say best what my father said to me, and that is that if you, the average person works five days a week, so if you love what you do, you know, you, uh, you spend five times of your life living, you know, living life. So, um, but I mean, you know, more of the points I started out in sports psychology because I was a way to marry my interest in sport, both as a individual who plays sport and someone who loves to watch it with my interest in psychology. And at the time, back in the nineties was called psychophysiology and today is now called neuroscience. Um, and so it was just a nice way to sort of bring my personal and professional interests together. Okay. But I think in the beginning, you were surrounded by people mostly interested in aging, no? physical activity, aging. So the interest is specifically children, physical activity, cognition came from. Right. That, yes. So, you know, when I started in this area as a doctoral student at Maryland under Brad Hatfield, um, he, you know, he, like others, were studying older adults, you know, kind of waiting for people to decline cognitively before we started to intervene. And uh, and that was really all the field was. I mean, uh, no one was even studying really young adults. Uh, kids was not a, a thing. Um, and it was early, like early 2000s. I had my first position at the University of Illinois as a young assistant professor. And I, I started wondering a lot about early intervention. Um, I had a kid of my own at that time. And uh, I think I said this on another podcast, but, you know, I, I took him at like, you know, one or two years old to this, you know, kid pit in the mall. It's that, you know, like play area on a cold day. And, and I just started, as I was watching him play, I, I was observing the other kids as well and seeing that some were running around the pit, like, you know, taking every opportunity to be physically active and run around and others weren't. They're were sitting there and just kind of quietly playing. And I began to wonder about physical activity behaviors in children and whether we could, you know, link those to, uh, to brain function at the time uh, and cognition. And so we published our first paper in 2005. It came out in MSSE. And um, I believe that was the first paper published that looked at uh, fitness effects, or sorry, the relationship of fitness to uh, brain function in children. Okay. So that was kind of the start. Okay. I'm going to ask you to do something very difficult, which is 
I'll give you three, four minutes. Can you explain why, what happens when we exercise and we are children? Why, what are the main changes that we can see in the brain? I know it's a difficult question to summarize in two, three minutes, but maybe sure. you can give us a, yeah, a summary. Yeah, I guess the way I would summarize the effects of fitness or physical activity on, on, on the brain, be it kids or adults, um, you know, we could, we could talk about this at the molecular level, the cellular level. Uh, the systems level or the behavioral level, right? And so uh, most of what we know about at the cellular molecular level comes from animal models. Um, you know, we see effects there, including uh, neurogenesis, uh, angiogenesis, uh, synaptogenesis, right? Um, in fact, there's some pretty cool studies from the 80s uh, that show that different types of exercise influence different types of genesis. Uh, you know, cardiorespiratory exercise, wheel running, is more angiogenesis and, and learning, uh, you know, learning or, or like motor control and learning type stuff is more synaptogenesis. Um, the big push in the field over the last decade, I'd say, is more towards growth factors, right? So our brain drive, neurotrophin factor, insulin light growth factor, things like that. Um, so we're seeing the, these factors. And, uh, and then in humans, as we move towards you know, imaging data, which is really the best we can do in humans at the moment, um, where, you know, we, we see effects in, in certain brain regions like, like prefrontal cortex and hippocampus. Um, those regions are rich in BDNF tracks, for instance, so we're able to link some of it back. Um, and, and more recently, the work in our lab has actually gone beyond just looking at certain regions, but looking at whole networks and connectivity within those networks and connectivity between networks. Um, and at the behavioral level, you know, what we're, we're really focused on are aspects of cognition that are supported by these brain regions, prefrontal cortex and hippocampus and, and their networks. And so, you know, we've, we've long hypothesized that the aspects of cognition, such as executive function that, that require prefront, the prefrontal network um, or uh, associative or, or uh, relational memory, uh, which require the hippocampus, um, that these would be the, the, the aspects of cognition that would be most effective. Not to say that other aspects of cognition aren't effective, but these would be the most effective. Do, do you think it makes sense to ask you um, what type of exercise is the best one? Then if, if we assume that it's a general physiological effect, what, what do you think about that? Because now it seems that we all know that exercise works, but sometimes we cannot replicate results. The, the size effects of the results are not the same. So we're looking at genotype, we're looking at uh, biomarkers, we're looking at type of exercise, we're looking at intensity, you know, the fit principles. Do you think it makes sense with children to be so specific to try to find the magic, you know, prescription program? Or what is your, what is your opinion about that? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, you know, look, exercise is not, Exercise is not medicine, right? I mean, I know we say exercise is medicine, but exercise is not medicine because if, you know, when it comes to medicine, we take a, a prescription and it, you know, assuming it's going to work, it works at that prescription, but there's no prescription for exercise to get to changes in brain function that I'm aware of. And we've not been able to figure this out as a field. I mean, and, and so what that means is that, you know, we can take many different medications. We can take many different types of exercise, right? And so, um, you know, I, I don't agree with the people who say that, that physical activity has to be cognitively demanding in order to 
engender benefits to brain and cognition. I, I just, there's too many, there's too much data that says otherwise. I'm not saying that that cognitively demanding exercise may be beneficial or even more beneficial than other types. We don't know. That work hasn't been done. Uh, and the randomized controlled trials just aren't there yet. There's a, a scattering of them, right? Um, where there's much more data is in cardiorespiratory exercise. And I'm sorry, but when you go look at the, the animal literature, there is nothing that is least that, that is less cognitively demanding than a rodent running on a wheel, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, and so we know that not, that that forms of exercise that, that require cardiorespiratory sufficiency that are not cognitively demanding also benefit brain and cognition. And so, um, you know, what I would say when it comes to kids is that the, the best, you know, until we can do these comparative studies of different types of exercise or, or activity programs, the best thing we can do is give them a multimodal program, right? One that involves cognitive demand, one that doesn't, that focuses on cardiovascular sufficiency, one that focuses on motor, you know, motor coordination and motor complexity. I mean, I think all of these things combined make for not only a, a more fit individual, but make for, you know, an individual with healthier, with a healthier brain and presumably better cognitive function as well. Okay. Okay. Um, I was asking this because I think now we are at this point where we're trying to just find again, you know, the magic prescription and we, we, we look at intensities. Is intensity important? And we know from the animal models and our research too that intensity matters. But the problem of these studies is that you have so many parameters to play with that you can change one, but then many others remain the same. And uh, so that's why I was asking you. Well, and I think, I think that's correct. I think there's so many individual difference factors. I mean, we know that, that, you know, boys and girls don't necessarily respond the same way yeah. uh, to exercise programs. Don't necessarily get the same benefits. You know, um, we're actually, we've seen, uh, we, we've seen examples where, where um, for instance, virtual uh, game, not virtual, sorry, like game playing, you know, physically, you know, like back like when we fit was the rage, we actually were able to show that, that it didn't engender the same benefit as running on a treadmill when we held, you know, constant, the dose of exercise between the two in terms of heart rate, uh, you know, heart percentage of heart rate max and what have you. And so, um, you know, we, we do see differences based on the different types of exercise and different types of individuals. Right. Okay. So you don't think we will find the algorithm, no? That I'm going to put your genotype, I'm going to put your Val 66 met, you know, uh, form, and I'm going to put your sex, biological sex, and other things, and I'm going to say, yeah, if you do this, you're going to respond better. If you if you do that, maybe you won't be that responsive. I, I think we might be able to identify thresholds. Uh, you know, I, I, and in fact, <clears throat> I've not seen this meta-analysis done yet. But one that's been kicking around the back of my head is taking all the um, all the RCTs out there and asking one simple question: Did the RCT engender a a change in fitness? And if the answer is yes, it goes in one pot, and if the answer is no, it goes in another. And then look at the effects on brain and cognition in in those two pots, right? And and I think that you know. I think that there's some minimum threshold in order to to gain a benefit, and if that's not met, then there's no benefit to be gained. Beyond that, you know, if it is met, beyond that, you know, 
I have a hard time believing it's going to be linear in a linear effect. You know, you can only gain so much fitness and so much brain and, you know, change and so forth. Okay. I want to change gears a bit and ask you about, you, you've published extensively studies, but also meta-analysis. You've been part of meta-analysis looking at physical activity, cardiorespiratory fitness, and academic performance, which is really of interest of you know many people, obviously. So what is the evidence that higher physical activity level or cardiorespiratory fitness can be first associated with, but also be causing you know, better grades? You know, I don't think that those data are as great as, as, as good as we like them to be. I'll, I'll, let me start there. Um, I, I think that we definitely see relationships. There's definitely beneficial relationships between fitness and physical activity and uh, academic performance, academic achievement, measured by school grades, standardized achievement tests, what have you. But there's of the RCTs out there, it's a very mixed bag. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I think one reason is, is that, um, like I said before, not all of these interventions are successful. I mean, you know, if, if you were to, if, if you were to intervene and it's, you know, you're not enacting any sort of change, why would you expect there to be a change in the outcome? Right. Um, the second is, is that, you know, standardized achievement tests tend to be you know, they tend to be a, a pretty blunt instrument in the sense that they're not designed for nuances. And, you know, really, they just want to see, did did the kid achieve, you know, what they're supposed to achieve in that grade level? And so that that's kind of difficult. Uh, that's a difficult tool to use. And then, and so what that does, that sort of takes us to, you know, subjective grades or teacher, you know, teacher assigned grades which have some subjectivity to them. And so, I mean, I, I think the field needs to really, I, I think we need to do a better job of seeing how academic performance is assessed in, in education and in educational psychology and, and collaborate in those areas in order to get at, you know, really what this relationship might be. So you're concerned um, about the outcomes and how we measure them first. And then if we don't have these, we cannot obviously measure the association with VO2, for example, or? Yes, that, that's kind of my, my belief. Um, you know, I will point to one study that we, uh, one study that we, we did a while ago, uh, Rain was the first author, uh, Lauren Rain, a longtime colleague of mine. Uh, she, you know, and, and uh, I'm trying to think who else was on that paper. I think our Kramer, our Kramer was definitely on that paper, but, you know, we, we borrowed a, a a paradigm from academia, sorry, from education, where the the kid came into the school, sorry, came into the lab on one day, learned fictitious maps, and then on the next day had to recall what they, you know, these maps and the regions within the maps. And we gave them two different strategies. One was just learn the map, right? And the other was, um, you know, we, we asked them to sort of test themselves as they're learning the map. So a test study strategy, something a lot of us do anyway, when we were going through school. And, uh, and we found that, that when you gave kids that strategy, a test study strategy, there's no difference based on fitness. They all got a strategy to learn and it worked. Um, and, but when, when they're left to their own devices, when they're left to use whatever strategy they want to just sort of that study strategy, the study condition, we found that higher amounts of fitness was related to better recall in that in that one 
So when it was more difficult, they did better. And I, I think, you know, that was a really nice, it was cross-sectional data, but it was a really nice out of the box, borrowing a paradigm from a different area. And, you know, we, we probably could do a better job of going back and finding more of these paradigms, you know. Um, I think that's where the field should go personally. You have a bunch of studies looking at the impact of chronic exercise, but you also did a lot of studies and you're still doing a thing, acute exercise. So the idea of the acute paradigm is, which I like, by the way, and, and I use it a lot, especially because it allows me to control things very well. Some people don't get it because they think, okay, with one bout of exercise, you won't change anything. But mechanistically, I think it gives you a lot of information. So the idea is that the timing of exercise matters. And if, if you put exercise in close proximity to a, to a, to a cognitive task, you're going to improve performance. Yep. What do you think about this model applied to real, to real, you know, the real world? Do you think timing, because when we look at the principles of, of exercise precision, we look at frequency, intensity, time, and duration, but timing is rarely taken, you know, into consideration. So, do you think this is something we can extrapolate to schools or even I, I use it in clinical settings with the stroke patients or Parkinson's, for example. What do you think about this acute model applied to? Do you think it matters when we exercise in relation to the encoding of information, for example, that we're trying to retain? I do. I think it does matter. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I think, you know, in terms of schools actually implementing this, I think it would be a great thing. Um, I, I'd love to see this happen more. Uh, I, you know, I think across the literature, it's a pretty robust effect. So I feel pretty safe in saying that there is a short period of time, a short window after exercise where, or after cessation of exercise where um, individuals show benefits to cognition. And we, that's been supported by changes in brain function during that brief window. And so I think in that regard, um, I think there's a lot of utility for it in the classroom. Um, I'd like, you know, if I were to design, I get asked this question, if I were to design the school day, redesign the school day, it would be a 45-minute lesson, a 10-minute bout of exercise, and five minutes of cool down, get to your next class, and then enjoy that benefit for the next 45 minutes to an hour, right? Yeah. And so I do that repeatedly throughout the day. Um, and so, uh, you know, School-wise, I know that, like, for instance, Naperville has implemented, you know, taking kids out and uh, having them walk or exercise prior to their standardized achievement test. They think it works. Um, you know, Paul Zintarski was instrumental in, in pushing that that through. Um, other than that, I've just heard a handful of uh, anecdotal yeah. bits where, like, you know, for instance, uh, the best one I heard was a middle school principal uh, had a treadmill brought into her office. and you know, the kids who struggled with attention, I don't know if they were actually, some I think were actually diagnosed as ADHD children, other, you know, kids with ADHD. Others, um, I think, just didn't have the attention span of their classmates. They would come to her office and run on the treadmill for a few minutes, then go back to class. And I thought that was a you know, pretty interesting approach, you know, rather than punishing them for acting up or not attending as they should, right? Yeah. Another... It's anecdotal too, but another example is Finland. Finland is one, they have probably one of the best educational systems in the world. If you look at the, the rankings, again, the rankings, maybe you shouldn't pay much attention to them, but apparently they have one of the best students and, and the system really works. And one of the characteristics of the system is that they have a lot of breaks. 
they have a lot of breaks and they go out and they exercise and they go back to class and so on. Of course, I'm not saying that they're good students only because of that. There's a, a huge, you know, uh, social interaction with the, with the parents and the teachers are very good and so on. But I think this could also explain why it performs so well. So it's just another anecdote um, of, of why timing matters. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree. I mean, I, I've had the, I've been fortunate enough to go out to, you know, uh, Finland a number of times, um, mostly to Vascula, and, and they certainly take their education seriously as, as they do their physical fitness, right, in their children. Something, you know, because of that, they probably, I, I believe their obesity rate is significantly lower than ours. That's a nice link to my next question because I want to talk about obesity. And I was I was looking at one of your papers. Um, you look at the acute response of exercise and you divided the population into obese and overweight kids and normal weight. And you found different responses, both electrophysiological responses, but also behavioral responses. I'd like you to explain the results. I, I, I found them very interesting. And then I'm going to ask you about the mechanisms because... I like to know why you found these differences between these two groups of, of kids. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Mark, that's a good question. I mean, you know, we're, we probably have somewhere around 10 papers in children with obesity. Um, and it's, it's difficult. I mean, you know, we're, we're trying to figure out what's going on, but what we tend to see is that children with obesity perform more poorly on cognitive tasks um, than their healthy weight peers. Um, we find that they, that in, um, in one of our randomized control trials, we actually find that they, they're disproportionately benefited by the program, meaning that they, they benefit the most from it and perform, had the biggest change from pretest to post-test. Okay. Um, but what's interesting about that is that, and this might get a little bit into mechanisms, which I, I will tell you right now, we don't know, but, um, you know, what we find actually is that it's not just obesity per se that is the marker of poor cognitive performance and better change following intervention. It's that um, it's actually it's visceral adipose tissue. So you know the the fat that surrounds your vital organs. We find that children with higher amounts of, of that uh, visceral adipose tissue, um, when they the more they lose, the better they perform at post test. And we didn't see the same thing for SAT right? Uh, subcutaneous adipose tissue. Um, and so it, it's, uh, you know, I, I think one potential mechanism might be, you know, the fact that that that, that is more metabolically demanding. Um, and so it might be something having to do with, uh, you know, dysregulation or, you know, or, or just competition for metabolic resources. Uh, I, I don't know. Um, this is something that we're starting to look into you know, we're starting to collect blood work and saliva and things like that, trying to understand this better. Um, but we do see that these effects are there in, in attention and inhibition and, and, and memory and flexibility. So we're, you know, we're seeing across a number of different cognitive, uh, cognitive tasks and, and in different aspects of brain function as well. So um, I, I think we're at the very beginnings of this. Uh, my colleague in Spain, Fran Ortega, you know, he, he just completed the uh, uh, Active Brains project where uh, they recruited 100 children with obesity. Um, so, you know, all of he did not have a lean or a healthy weight comparison group, but he, he's been, you know, replicating, extending a lot of the work we've done in our lab with RCTs to his in, in children with obesity. So 
I don't I don't remember views as enjoyment or I mean I guess if you if you have overweight maybe you enjoy exercise less and this could explain perhaps the effects the acute effects um the chronic I don't know because it's interesting what you're saying that chronically if you train them they benefit more also it could be ceiling effects too I don't know they, they, they probably have a bunch of things going on there but do you think like the social aspects like enjoyment did you assess this to see if they could mediate the, the cognitive response to the acute effect of exercise so so we have not i mean we you know i think that's a very solid point and, and moving forward we are you know collecting some psychosocial measures some you know aspects of, of uh, affect and emotion and and whatnot um i i think there's absolutely other explanations other factors in play uh much the way we started this was that we noticed in our first fit kids study that, you know, I think it was 40, 40 or 50% were overweight and obese. We didn't recruit for that. They just were. And so, um, you know, we've sort, we, we sort of took what we had at the time and now moving forward, we're, we're trying to gain more, you know, more variables to, to better explain this effect. I mean, we know that the kids with obesity do struggle with other mental health issues, right? And so that, that could be part of it as well. And we know that exercise benefits some of those mental health issues as well, right? So, but, but I will tell you, because you brought it up, the acute effect in, in obese kids, we have, we have two studies that suggest that they do not benefit from the dose of exercise that we've prescribed in those studies the way healthy weight kids do. And so one of the areas we're cleaning up right now is how to, um, is what dose of exercise might gain benefits to them. Yeah, this is a study I was referring to really, I found really interesting that they go really in opposite directions when you look at the acute effects. It really, the normal weight group improve cognition and the other one does not. That's right. We, we've replicated that. We just haven't, uh, we haven't published it out yet, but We've replicated that and we've extended it to, to uh, ERP measures, brain function measures. So let me ask you about technology. <laughs> it's a controversial issue and virtual reality, video games. Do we embrace them and we accept that they're here, they will go away and we try to integrate them in physical activity? Do you see them as enemies or how do you see them? I mean, there is quite a lot of debate now about video games, screen time, physical activity levels. And what, what is your take on this? Well, I, I don't view it as an enemy. I mean, I think viewing it as an enemy is a mistake because they're here to stay. And I, I think the much more constructive, you know, uh, consideration is, is, you know, how do we embrace them in order to promote physical activity? Um, I was, I was part of a, a group that studied um, physical activity, uh, like extra gaming, in overweight and obese kids compared to healthy weight kids. And actually what they showed was that, that overweight and obese kids move differently. They put the, the group put sensors all over their, you know, upper and lower extremities and showed that actually in some of the games, some of the most physically demanding games, uh, overweight and obese kids would move their arms more and healthy weight kids would move their legs more. And so I don't think it's the same experience for every kid. And so it'd be nice, you know, if, if overweight and obesity is a, you know, is associated with game play, then I think we need to figure out what games would motivate them and at the same time motivate more physical activity. Okay. Okay. So. 
Um, I think that some of your most recent research is looking at environmental factors, no? And what happens when you exercise in the nature versus, do you, maybe you don't have data, but do you think there is any difference? Let's say that physiologically I'm doing exactly the same type of exercise. Let's forget about the psychosocial or the social interaction. I put a treadmill at home and I, you know, run 30 minutes, same intensity, everything the same, or I go to the forest, I do the same. Do you think that cognitively there is a difference? Well, um, there's a whole nother body of literature separate from exercise that points to just being in nature, uh, you know, is enough to, um, just being in nature is enough to warrant, um, you know, benefits in brain and cognition. So in that regard, I mean, I, I think the question is really more about, is it synergistic, right? Yeah. Uh, are there synergistic, uh, benefits, I guess. Okay. So, um, you know, I think we're, we're trying to figure that out at this point. Okay. So using virtual reality in different envir environments to, to see if, if changing the environment has any differential effect, is that what you, what you're trying to do? Yeah. And so in our, in this study, we're, um, in this study, we're looking at, you know, uh, whether exercising virtually in a city, in a city versus in a, uh, you know, versus in a, um, uh, a nature experience, if that, if those benefit one another, okay. Um, differently, that's kind of the, yeah, yeah. The goal. very interested in seeing what you, what you find. I think it's going to be interesting. Yeah, I, I think it, it could be interesting too. Um, so I, I think we're just going to have to see if, if it's, uh, you know, how it plays out, right? Yeah. yeah. So let me ask you about the pandemic. <laughs> and I, I guess we don't have enough data yet, but do we know how physical activity levels have changed in, in children during the pandemic? And do you think we're going to you think in some years we're going to see a generation that went through the uh, went through the pandemic, and we can see that cognitively, I don't know, there are some issues still, and this is associated to a reduction in physical activity. Yes, I mean there there are papers that are coming out now that are suggesting that uh, that are suggesting that that kids, you know, are, are the pandemic is is worse for them you know, they're physically, they're physically inactive before, and they're even more physically inactive now. Right. Uh, and that they were obese before, and they're even more obese now. Right. So that's, it, it's pretty clear that they're, that it, it's, it's not a good, it's not a good scene for them. Right. Uh, and, and you're basically, what we're doing is we're putting pandemic on top of pandemic, I guess. I guess it's difficult to also tease out between, social isolation, physical inactivity, stress. Uh, so it's going to be very difficult to conduct these studies, but I think it's still very interesting to see how exactly how much they reduce physical activity levels and also how these affected their cognitive levels. Um, I guess it's going to be difficult to answer this question because it's, it, there are many factors involved. Yes, I, I think that's true. Um, and I think that... Uh, I, I think we're going to see a lot more of it, I guess, is, you know, I, I think this is going to come out yeah. as the only way I know how to like more and more and more of it's going to come out, I think, you know? 
Yeah, let me ask you two more questions. Um, what is the question that you have not been able to answer yet that you want to answer? This is a cliche maybe, but honestly, I think, I think it's interesting to know things that you don't know yet and you want your research to answer in the next 10 years. That's a really good question, Mark. I think I'm most interested in unpacking the effects on the brain. I mean, I, I think one of the things that we've done a, a really good job at is trying to stay um, current in, in our imaging, right? And imaging is changing wildly and, you know, really rapidly. And with that, we're getting, you know, we're getting to learn more and more and more about it. But, you know, we're at a stage now where, and I have new colleagues um, and they're, they're influencing me. Um, and so they're, they're, they're basically, you know, borrowing some of their methods. I think that we're in a position where we're going to learn a lot more about brain function, particularly network uh, within and between network type stuff. That's really interesting. I, I think I also want to put to rest this matter of a single type of exercise is necessary. And so in the next 10 years, I'd really like to be part of a group of people um, who might, uh, you know, might be interested in, in ways to, you know, think about how to, how to benefit, how kids could benefit in all different ways, I guess, you know, so that, that's kind of my, the two areas. Um, and then lastly, I guess the third one is I really want to unpack more of that, uh, the acute effect. I want to see the limits of it, figure where we can, you know, where we can benefit kids and really see if we can get that implemented in a larger capacity into schools. Okay. So this has been terrific. Um, I learned a lot. Um, thank you so much. I just want to ask you, where, where can people find you? Uh, I guess we can Google your name, but do you have a Twitter account or are you present in social media or? I must admit, I'm not as good as I should be. Uh, my, my lab does have an account. Uh, it's at CBH lab, which is on Twitter. Um, we don't post a lot, um, but, you know, that's something we're actually, you know, remember, I, I don't know, Mark, actually, if you even knew this, but I've only, I've only moved to Boston five years ago. The, you know, my lab took time to, uh, my lab took time to set up, get the building was brand new and all that. So we're just now, literally just now at the point where we've hired someone to, to work on our website. And so the next step is going to be to develop our social media, you know, uh, presence. So we're, we're, we're building towards it. Okay. Anyway, I'm going to put it in the notes so people can get in touch with you if they have questions or they want to follow your work. Okay. okay. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it.